Welcome to Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. My goal is to encourage you to follow your dreams and give you a playbook on how to get there. Thanks for listening and let the episode begin. I am so excited to introduce you to our mentor this week, Karen McCullough. Karen is the co-screenwriter of incredible movies such as 10 Things I Hate About You. She's the man, the house bunny, the ugly truth. She had her hand in Ellen Chanted and my personal favorite, Legally Blonde. Man, this interview is so special and it makes me so happy to interview this screenwriter, one of the screenwriters for your favorite movie is just an incredible experience. She tells us how she started with 10 Things They Hate About You and walks us through her projects, how they started, what were they inspired by, how she started working with her writing partner, Kirsten Smith. She also gives tips for new writers on how to start writing right now, including book recommendations, which I've added to the show notes. Actually, just take a look at the show notes this week because I've added a ton of resources that she recommends for writing your own project. She also talked a bit about their writing process and how it's changed and what it was like being on set for movies like Legally Blonde and The Ugly Truth. I also asked her about that viral tweet, which I'm not sure if you guys saw from a few months ago, where she disproved a trending Legally Blonde theory. I'm too excited. Let's dive in. Without further ado, here's Karen McCullough. Welcome, Karen, to Mentors on the Mic. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. I'm so, so thrilled for you to be here. Um, but I always like to start off the podcast with the question, what was your first role in entertainment? Screenwriter. The, yes. I sold a script when I was 30. And that was 10 Things I Hate About You. That was the first sale. Before that, I had a couple little odd writing assignments here and there from uh, no one like really deeply in the industry kind of on the peripheral people you know producers trying to get something going but the sale of 10 things was like really my first entree into the business so and you met your writing partner which I I really wanted to ask about because I feel like a lot of people wish they had a writing partner in general that works as well as you and, and Kristen seem to but can you tell me a little bit about meeting your writing partner and how those initial like first maybe few months were like writing 10 things Sure. I had been, I was living in Denver at the time and I would travel back and forth to LA, you know, a few times a year to meet with producers. And I had a agent out here and, uh, you know, I was just getting my own meetings. Basically I was so green that he never really sent me on anything, but I would, you know, send query letters, I guess is what they're called to, uh, yeah. different production companies. And they would read my scripts and if they liked it, they would say, oh, next time you're in LA, let's meet. And so I would occasionally have these meetings. And Kirsten was working as a reader at one of, an independent production company. And she had read one of my scripts and said, oh, I love your writing. Send me everything you have. And then so the next time I came to LA, I met her for a drink. 
Mm. And how uh, many, how many things were you able to send her? I'm always curious, um, with writers, like how many things do you just have in your back pocket, just in case someone asks that. Oh, I probably had nine scripts nice. at that point. Yeah. Nice. Um, so then we met for drinks and I told her an idea I had for, you know, the next script I wanted to write. And she loved it and was like, came up with all these great ideas for it. And she had just quit her job to become a writer. So mm. I was like, oh, well, why don't we write this together? And so we started that night on cocktail napkins, mm. um, writing script. And that was like a big kind of female action drama thing. Uh, never, never sold. But then after that, we decided we wanted to write a teen movie because that's what we both really loved. Mm. Like all the John Hughes movies and Clueless had just come out. And we were like, this is genius. She took like a classic and made it into a contemporary high school story let's do that. What a great mm. idea. And so then we happened upon Taming of the Shrew in our search for what we could contemporize. And that was how 10 things started. And I was still living in Denver at the time. So we wrote that wow. separately and would just send each other scenes, but we did go to Mexico to outline it for a week. Um, oh. I had a timeshare in Puerto Vallarta. So we sat on the beach with a notebook and a bucket full of Coronas. Mm. And we outlined all the characters and what the beats, all the different scenes were going to be. And then we, you know, went back home, heard a, um, she was living in Eagle Rock and we wrote our scenes and put it all together. And then um, it sold to Touchdown. Wow. And you, you to, is it true you used to mail the drafts to each other? Yeah, she didn't even have email for the longest wow. time. She was like a total Luddite. And I remember one time I like, <laughs> Airborne Express, which is, you know, like FedEx. I don't know if that Airborne is still even around, but I, I like airborne her like 40 pages because it was taking so long to like put them through the fax machine. I was just like, I'm just going to send them to you overnight. But uh, yeah, we would, and it was very, that, uh, ha, very different. And and are, are you, do you have a, you have a completely different way of writing with her now, right? Can you talk to me a little yes, bit about I, what, what's different now? I her to get email. <laughs> <laughs> you have to get it um, but yeah so well there's two ways we we still when we finally were living in the same place we would write our scenes um separately originally for the first draft and then put them together and kind of rewrite each other's scenes and then we had our you know once we had a draft we would sit there together and go over it line by line um but then at one point we decided well let's just do the whole thing sitting in the same room and mm. line by line um but you know, now that the pandemic has come upon us, we are doing our scenes separately again, and then mm. going over them line by line on the phone. So it's it's different each, a little bit each time, but whatever's mm. working at the time due to the circumstances. Excellent. And so you wrote ten things, and did you know right away that it was like something incredibly special? I, I know people ask that, but I, I'm always curious. Were you writing it? And you're like something's really great about this, or was it like let's try this out? <laughs> Well, I mean, I hoped it would be, but I had no yeah. idea that, you know, 20, God, 20, almost 25 years later, because it came out in 1999. Right. Oh so 23 God. years later, people are still talking about that movie and enjoying and it. Quoting so it. And quoting yeah. it. And I say I'm underwhelmed all the time. <laughs> um, or can you ever just be whelmed? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so with 10 things, let's start with that. So obviously this was the, the first big, big thing. Um, I know that the title of it and, and the concept a little bit came from, I think, was it a high school diary entry of yours? 
Uh, well, just the, the title. Just the title? Yeah. Because when we decided to write a teen movie, I went back and read my high school diaries mm. to put me in that mindset. And that's when I found a list of things that I hated about my boyfriend at the time. And so I told Kirsten about that. She was like, oh my God, that's a great title. So it is a great title. And and you came into it wanting to adapt Taming of the Shrew, right? So so what was well, that yeah, like? We yeah, we wanted to adapt a classic, but mm. um, then we decided that Taming of the Shrew was like the perfect one to do. It's so good. It's so We great. looked at like Greek myths. I mean, we were like all over the place. Oh, it's so good. And so- Oh God, I, I have such fond memories of watching that movie. I mean, when I say like multiple times, really it's been multiple times and it really has withstand. I mean, I talk to friends about it still. Um, so that first film, how much, you know, after writing it, after getting it to touchstone, what was your involvement in it? Was were you able to sort of be on set all the time? Were you able to be part of the casting choices? I'm kind of curious as to that first project, how, how much were you able to have a hand in putting it together and seeing it sort of into fruition? We were only on set for about three days because mm. it was shooting up in Tacoma in Seattle and we yeah. were working on a sitcom here in LA at that point after we sold 10 things um I moved out here because we got a development deal for 20th century Fox television and we were working on a sitcom um so we couldn't just you know say peace out we're going to this out of our movie but they they were nice they let us go for like three days and um but yeah like the 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 studio exec Mark Varadian who is now a producer that we're still working with. We just sold a project to Amazon with him. Um, he kept us involved, but um, you know, the director at the time was like, oh, it's it's my project now. And so like he kind of <laughs> took over, but uh, the producer in the, in the studio exec kept us involved. They were very nice. Oh, that's good so time. nice. So that was your first thing. It was, you know, when it came out and it had such a great reception, what was that like for you guys? Was it, you know, did it change things? Obviously you have this development deal, um, already in yeah. play and you're working on other stuff but how did that change for you well the movie when it came out it wasn't like a huge hit at the time because we opened yeah. against the matrix which like trumped <laughs> us um, but it did like respectable numbers it was you know and you know none of those kids were big stars at the right? time like joseph gordon levitt was on third rock from the sun so he was right. like the, the best known face in the cast at the time but wow. um so it's like you know, they've all become huge since then. But yeah. at the time, it's like they were just kind of like, oh, just cool crop of kids. But um, but yeah, so it opened a lot of doors for us after, mm. you know, after the script sold and then after the movie came out. And then the next one we did was uh, Legally Blonde. Right. So let's let's go into this because this is this is my love. This is everything. It's so great. Um, How did that start? I, I'm so curious. That was based on an unpublished manuscript at the time. And two different producers called me to pitch it to me because the author's agent had sent it around. And Amanda literally Brown, I was on the right? phone with one when it was like call waiting came through and someone else started pitching me. And I was like, wait, someone else is pitching me this on the other line. Wow. Um, but people, you, you know, the producers that were interested in it just immediately thought of Kirsten and I, I guess. They thought that so we were bad. right for the material. <laughs> So Mark Platt, our producer, got it and MGM bought it. And then we just came up with a take on how we would change the details of the, the manuscript uh, to make it a movie. Mm. 
And and what were the main differences? Because I I was surprised when I was you know researching for this that there was a novel prior to, um, and so now I need to go and get it. But in general, like what what, what were the she, main differences? Yeah. Well, I think she changed the, the novel. Didn't actually come out until like a year after the movie. So that's she, what it was. I think she changed the uh, the details to make it more like the movie, so that there would be some cohesion. But uh, the main differences were that the Luke Wilson character didn't exist we invented him like in the book she ends up with the teacher but the teacher was not a creep like we made him in the oh, movie great yeah <laughs> we're like no she did not end up with the sexual harassment the book. He was a nice guy. <laughs> but we were like no we're, we don't want her with the teacher we're gonna give her a hot younger guy yes. so um yeah so we met him and the whole um the manicurist subplot their friendship um things like that and I think the trial was about a mortgage and we turned it into a murder trial to make up more more stakes but, um, but yeah, it was like, you know, the basic bones of the story were there for sure. And it was just such a, a fun idea to have like the beautiful, rich, popular girl be the underdog instead of the villain. So that was fun to do, work with. What, what do you feel like was the first thing you guys started with? I mean, obviously you have the book, but what was like the main thing that you felt like was important to to come through when you were like first sort of, cause you, you said, like you said, you added the friendship and storyline with Paulette, you added the Luke Wilson character. What was the thing that was like the most important part of writing this and putting this, you know, together? What was like the foundation? If you it was like just really nailing her character and, yeah. you know, that she was really kind to everyone and, you know, this kind of oblivious optimism that she had, you know, it never occurred to her that she wouldn't get into Harvard or never occurred yes. to her that she wouldn't get, you know, Warner back. So it's like seeing how she rebounded from disappointments and went on to do better things and just making sure that we really had her attitude and, you know, her good heart down for sure. I think, I think that's one thing that everyone can take from it. I feel like her character is just so rich. Like there's just so much there. And, and even if, it's not explained. Like, I feel like sometimes movies and even books sometimes will really go into explaining like, okay, let me take you through this person's childhood and, and really like show you how they've become. It was almost this like really, really like beautiful full character. And you were just seeing her in action already. Um, yeah. So, you know, seeing her just the, the way she spoke to, you know, her friends and people she didn't know. And then also how she interacted when someone was trying to give her like, you know, uh, you know, there was an issue with the dress and she was like, this is last year's, et cetera. I just felt like she already, she had a way of talking to people. It was always nice. It was just, it was so well done, especially in, in conjunction with, um, Reese Witherspoon's incredible acting. Um, but I, I noticed somewhere I I read that you, you had this quote and I just felt like I wanted to ask you this in terms of the process of writing. You were like, uh, you said you might not work in fashion merchandising, but you'll write a character's majoring it. It all shows up in different ways. Your life is an accumulation of things that eventually end up in your writing. And I wanted to ask you about that because a, I found it inspiring, but B just this idea that sometimes I feel like people feel like they're behind or that they haven't done enough, or they've spent so many years, you know, getting experience, but for what, et cetera. And I love this because it's this idea. You don't know where you're going to get this knowledge. You don't know where you're going to use this one day, but right. yeah. I mean, you, you studied marketing, right. In, in school and uh, yeah, didn't so work. In- merchandising was my minor. Oh, so interesting. I thought, Oh, well, this is what Elle Witch should be. Cause I think in the book, she was like a sociopolitical jewelry major. And I was Ooh. like, I don't know if that's real. Let's, let's make one that's like, 
a little bit more uh, <sighs> something that I know exists and that I, you know, I took classes at it, so I know how to write that. But yeah, so um, I think what I was trying to say by that is, you know, that that was my minor in school, but it's not a career that I pursued, but that I was able to use, you know, that experience and that knowledge to give it to this character. And there's, you know, I didn't go to a film school. I went to James Madison, which is kind of a party school in Virginia, mm-hmm. although they'd be mad at me for saying that. It was party school at the time. Maybe it's very brainy now. I don't know. But, um, you know, I feel like I did not get any... Um, an education in the career I have now at that school but I was in a sorority at that school and I've written two movies set in a sorority house so obviously I got something very valuable from my time in college but it just wasn't how it you know how you think it's going to turn out so yeah um, but it and it also opens itself up to the idea that like no matter you know where you are in life like you know you could you probably have taken details from different parts of your life and put them into your movies and they seem maybe very innocuous or, or, you know, nothing at the time, but then, you know, they inform these characters, they inform your scripts. Absolutely. I love that. Um, And in terms of teaching yourself a little bit about creating screenplays, I just wanted to kind of go back a little bit into how you started figuring out how to do this. Like you said, you, um, you majored in, in marketing, I believe, and then minored in fashion merchandising, which I didn't know that part. But in general, like, you know, you didn't study this, you didn't train, but you kind of yeah. built your own school, I feel like you built your own training program. Can I ask you about that? Yeah. Well, at my graduation, our speaker was a man named Thief Sutton, who was a writer and producer on the show Cheers at the time. And he had gone to JMU. And so when he was up there talking about that, I thought, wait a minute, you can work in like TV and movies after you've gone here. Like it never even occurred to me Mm. that that was a job I could have because it was, you know, I was in Virginia. I was, you know, majored in business. I was just like, whoa, okay, that's interesting. And I just kind of put that in the back of my brain. And then I went on to work in, um, you know, marketing and PR and investments. I got my stockbroker's license at one point. Oh, wow. But I always wanted in the back of my mind, I was like, I should be a writer because I was having to write a lot of stuff for marketing, like, you know, brochures and speeches and stuff for the, um, you know, stock workers I was working with. And people would say, oh, you're a good writer. And then I thought, well, if if I'm any good, I should just write something I want to write instead of all this crap about mutual funds. You know, that wasn't interesting to me. So um, then um, my ex-husband got transferred to Albuquerque at the time and there wasn't any jobs comparable to what I had um, in Washington DC so I decided to um, start writing on the side of my freelance PR business and then I just was I think I started trying to write a novel and I got a little bored with it and then Hmm. I read a book called how to write for film and tv right and I was like this is what I'm supposed to do and I had rewatched recently the movie because I first came out when I was in college but then I saw it again in my 20s uh the big chill and that Mm. one just really inspired me because it's just so funny and it's just such a simple story about a group of friends and I was like that that movie makes me want to write movies and so then I just took a weekly workshop up in Santa Fe with a retired tv writer and just kept going and read every script I could get my hands on and watched movies and would like time the different act breaks like write down you know I would stop them and write down okay it's 20 minutes in and now this has happened just to like teach myself the structure so yeah I had to like kind of keep myself a whole career 
I'm going to do that because I I feel like as an actor, they always tell you, like, you should make your own work. You should make, it's so hard to just wait for parts. Right. You should make your own work. And, you know, it's intimidating to be like, well, I, yeah, I'm not a writer. You know, that's like the first thing I'll think of. I'm not a writer. I, I don't know what to write for myself. Um, but this feels like an actionable way of starting, at least, yeah. you know, obviously taking classes. But but this as well, just sitting down, timing movies, writing down what happens at each beat. Um, I really love that. And I'll, I'll, do you recommend the book, how to write for film and TV? Um, you know what? It was like, a, it's so dated now. It was like a yeah. writer's digest book. Um, there's so many other ones that I've read okay. since like the save the cat books. Mm, okay. Um, I don't even know if that, how to write for film and TV is even in print, but it was basically really? just like an overview of the, of the career. Um, and then like how to make a good writer. Great. How to write a movie in 21 days. There's a okay. lot of books that I read starting out, but most importantly is just read as many scripts as mm-hmm. you can find. Yes. Because you're going to learn more from reading the scripts of movies you like and seeing how they craft it and how it's laid out on the page and the format and, you know, how much description and, you know, little things like that. And getting, getting a handle on dialogue is probably the most important because when you're new, that's what sounds most unnatural a lot of times is the dialogue. But mm. I feel like now because you know, writers have so much access. You can get scripts on the internet. You can watch any show or any movie you want within, you know, two seconds of deciding you want to watch it. Um, So now it's, it's much easier for people. I I taught at Syracuse university last year Mm. and I was shocked at how good my students were at screenwriting, like their dialogue and their sense of story structure. I mean, it was, I was amazed at how great they were. I'll, uh, I'll include links in the show notes this episode about the books that you said, as well as like links to scripts, because they, I think that people are curious about this stuff and they just sometimes don't, you know, actively know where to start looking or where to start yeah. reading. So I think we the Writers it. Guild Library has just mm. every script, every written, probably. Excellent. You might Excellent. have to actually physically go there, but you can yeah, buy maybe. a lot of them online or yeah, you probably have to buy them or you can probably just download most of them. Yeah, I don't know. That's so great. I'll look it up. I mean, I've, I've done stuff with the, with the WGA, but just haven't like explored their website thoroughly. If you want to hear lively and engaging discussions with women working in all facets of film, television, and media, then you must subscribe to the Women Crush Wednesdays podcast from New York Women in Film and Television, also known as NYWIFT. Our episodes inform, motivate, and inspire. Look for Women Crush Wednesdays from NYWIFT on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Anchor, or wherever you listen. If you would like to be featured on an episode, reach out to us at communications at nywift.org. That's communications at nywift.org. Um. So anything else about Legally Blonde before we go into our next one? Was there, were you able to be on set for a little bit for that? How was it first yeah. seeing was, it? You I know? was there yeah? every day for that one because oh. that, we shot that in LA. Nice. So that was really fun. Yeah. Mm. And how was it like seeing it sort of in action? Like seeing your words come to life? It was great. Robert Lukatic is such an amazing director. Everything looked exactly like how I pictured it. Oh. It was just a joy to get to set every day and our production designer just everything was perfect. 
I've had other mentors on this podcast say, especially writers that, you know, there is a difference often between, you know, the original screenplay and then actually filming it. And then it's a completely different movie. Also, once you edit it, do you feel that way? Um, There are, yeah, there's been cuts of movies that I've seen where I didn't like the editing as much as the final cut. Yeah. Like, especially with comedy editing, you can't live on, you can't just linger after the joke. You kind of have to cut out after the joke. Because if you linger too long, it like deflates the humor of the joke. Right. So that's a, a skill that comedy editors really have to have. So I've seen cuts where you're like, ooh, I don't know if that's really working. And then mm. a new editor comes in to cut it and you're like, oh my God, that's hilarious. Thank God. You know, so Excellent. it's just that that's editing is a very, very important job right. in comedy. So we did Legally Blonde and then let's go next to, I, I believe, Ellen Enchanted 2004. So how did you come across that, that idea and, and figuring out how to put that story together? That was a book, a children's book that um, Miramax wanted us to make into like a live action Shrek kind of thing. Mm. But we were working on something else for Miramax at the time. So we only worked on that one for about a month, I think, Okay. Um, with the director, Tommy O'Haver. Um, but then... I think Miramax decided they wanted to make it more kid-friendly and more rated G. So I think there was probably about 10 writers total on that over the course of two years. Um, And it shot in Ireland. So we never went. There we go. So, so what else were you working on at that time? Cause I'm sure it's one of those things where as a writer at that point, you're just, you're working on on many different projects. I'm always curious about that. It was a a female detective movie based on a series of books from the fifties and sixties, but it never got made. How is that? How is it? Because I'm always curious, like, what percentage do you think of the screenplays you write end up being made into a film or a project? Uh, I've never done the math, but there's definitely more that don't get made than do get made. Mm. I mean, I've been writing since 1997. So, and I've had, I think, what is it now? Nine movies? Yeah, maybe. So definitely way more. Yeah. Well, I, I, it seems discouraging, but I also think it's, it's important and it's encouraging maybe for people who've written so many things and maybe haven't felt like there was enough that was put out there. They haven't been able to develop as many of the projects as they would like, that that's completely normal, (laughs) that that's unfortunate. That's part of it. That's part of this whole thing. As long as someone's still paying you for them, you know? Yeah, exactly. You're making a living. Is there a difference between um, when, you know, the companies come come to you or ask you to do something and they'll be like, hey, we'll pay you to do this, as opposed to the ones that you maybe find yourself uh, or decide well, you to know, come up with yourself? That's, yeah. you know, considered an original. Um, mm-hmm. Then you're doing like kind of all of the heavy lifting. If a studio asks for a rewrite, then usually there's something about the plot or a character that they already like. Um and then you don't have to do as much heavy lifting. Like a lot of times I'll get asked to do rewrites where it's like, okay, we like the story. Just make everybody funny. And I'm like, that's like, <laughs> heaven yeah, to me. thank you. Yeah. And that's like the, the, yeah. my favorite, like my favorite type of rewrite because it's like, oh my gosh, this is a dream. I just get to really? sit here and make these characters funny without having to redo the whole plot. But I mean, so plot, plotting is fun. It's like doing yeah. a giant puzzle. And a lot of times while I'm coming up with plots or trying to figure out the answer to a problem in one of my plots, I will literally sit and do a jigsaw puzzle. Guess. See, oh, an actual jigsaw. That's so interesting. Yeah. Oh, I um, love that. So um, 
now I also paint a lot while I'm plotting and planning because it just it gets your mind working in a different way although it's still being creative yeah and it's kind of like a massage for the brain Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it gives your brain time to be like oh wait here's the answer like you don't even know you're thinking about it and all of a sudden you're like holy crap it sounds very meditative where you're just like almost zoning out but not because you're still being creative you're just focusing on something else and then you can let more inspiration or creativity come to you I love that um so, so then we go into, she's the man. So can you tell us a little bit about that process? And what was that? Yeah, like? that was really fun. They asked us to do that one because um, there was a script already written. It was because it was based on 12th night, another Shakespeare play. So that's why they came to us because we'd done 10 things. Right. Um, and the, the first writer, Jack Leslie had set it all in the world of um, a play, like a drama club. And the studio that bought it decided that they didn't want it to be a play they wanted it to be about soccer so then we moved it to um you know she's trying to get on the boys soccer team and that's why she's pretending to be her brother and um we had to learn a lot about soccer but uh yeah. <laughs> neither of us have ever played we're like insert soccer seat here we'll figure it out later uh, but um it was really fun it was a lot of fun when we went on set for i think three or four days that was up in nice. vancouver nice shot. yeah Oh, fantastic. And so it's so interesting to think that like, they're like, oh, let's make it about this. And oh, you know what? Let's change it to soccer because it it worked. It worked. It worked really well, actually. Um, And I can't even imagine it not having that context. Yeah. I think at the time they were like, soccer has become so popular. Like, you know, it'll be a bigger audience than if we just make it like the drama club. And so, yeah, I think that was definitely a very good call. And it worked really well with the names. Like I remember thinking that when I first realized, you know, when I was younger, that this was based on, you know, Shakespeare, I remember thinking like, oh, you know, like, like, like sort of studying all the names and being like, oh, okay. Like we have, uh, you know, exactly. (laughs) It's it's words, it's names that you really wouldn't see in your like average high school, but I think yeah. it, it made it really, it was really nice. Yeah. So, there's a character yeah. named Malvolio. In the yeah, exactly. I was thinking it. Malvolio. I was like, yeah, yeah exactly. We're like, we can't name a person that, but let's name the spider that. Like we just wanted to get the name in there. So it's like, that was and, like the villain spider's name. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and, and a lot of, I mean, Channing Tatum, that was one of his first movies, I believe. Yeah. And it's I like bugged well. the crap out of the studio, the director, and the producer, everyone to hire him. Because I saw really? his tape, and I was just like, he, he's the one, he's the one, he's the one. You were right. I mean, he he was magical in that movie. Like, I remember yeah. we watched, you know, as, as a girl, we watched it, and we're like, oh, who's that guy? Like, who's who's he? He just, like, came off the screen, so. That's how I felt when I saw the audition tape. I'm like, this guy's perfect. He's funny. He's gorgeous. He can act. Like, yeah. he's, the, he's the full package. And then so, of yeah, course, Amanda Bynes just took that character and create, I mean, you really have had some such great actors, to, you know, sort of take the hold and, and, uh, and sort of lead these, these female like led comedies, if you will. Yeah. She's just a comedic genius. Like yeah. her sense of timing and the faces she made, and she was just not yeah. afraid to go for the silly at all. And it's interesting. Cause the one thing you, you know, when you watch the movie, you really have to sort of suspend this idea that like everyone, uh, everyone thinks she's a guy. 
Like everyone yeah. feels like she's this guy and she's, she's getting away with it really, really well. And so I think, but, but it works because I think she does such a great job and the writing really lends itself and everyone just kind of suspends belief and just like, you know, you, you watch it going, okay, everyone thinks she's a guy right now. We're, we're cool right. with it, but it's so funny part, though. When I watch it back now is that in the end, when her brother comes back and everyone, you know, doesn't realize that they're yeah switch spots it's like yeah. the guy playing her brother is like at least a foot taller than her I'm like know. no one noticed that like- and the only way they could know like they could um sort of distinguish is if, if obviously if like they they undress like that's yeah. just the solution we're just going to keep having them undress on the field and prove what gender they are oh my god can you imagine that scene now in, i know like, climate? I, never, it, just, it could shot. never it would not be yeah. it would not work it would definitely yeah. have to be rewritten for today that's so that's interesting sure. to think about um yeah, so yeah that was sh- like the whole gender thing they'd be like well who yeah. cares like you know it's just a different world <laughs> Which is crazy to think because this was such, I mean, like you said, it was based in Shakespeare. This was something that's been around forever, yeah. but you're right. It would be very different now. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So then only a couple of years later was the house bunny. So you had probably been working on that for a bit, even before this was completed. So again, another sorority movie, like you said, what was yeah. the, what was the basis of this? How what was the inspiration for this story? inspiration for that was I was sitting in traffic and I was looking up at the billboard for the movie Just Friends Mm. and thinking about how funny Anna Faris had been in that role and she was like not even the lead she just was like a supporting character who was hilarious and I thought you know what she's gonna be like the next female comedic star we've we've got to meet with her so I called my agent from the stoplight and I was like set up a coffee with Anna Faris and so we met her at um I think it was Solar de Coenga, this coffee shop near my house. Nice. And we asked her, you know, just hung out with her and asked her, like, are there any characters in your head that you've been knocking around that you would love to play? And she said, well, I always thought it'd be fun to play like a Playboy bunny who gets kicked out of the mansion because like, where do those girls go? Oh, and uh, she kind of had like a dark idea. Like she goes back to her small Southern town and becomes like a drug addict. And I'm like, or we could do it as a comedy. That might be funnier. So then uh, I was like, let me think about that for a bit. And I had had another idea that was like sitting in my idea file, kind of like a female animal house where like a very uptight uh, woman gets, you know, community service or whatever, and has to be the house mother at this like wild sorority where the girls were like, totally you know partying and causing trouble and then after we met with Anna I was like well wait a minute what if we flip it what if the sorority is kind of like shy and nerdy and Anna like the playboy buddy becomes the house mother Mm. and so we went back and pitched her that and she was like yeah I love it let's do that and so then we um, went around town pitching it and Anna did lines we you know she came with us and did lines in character and uh, we finally sold it. So that was Happy Madison oh. was our producer on that. Oh, and I think originally yeah. we sold it to Paramount, but they didn't have spot on their schedule to make it within the next year. So Sandler's like, okay, well, if you guys don't have a space for it in the schedule, I'm just going to take it to Sony because they'll make it this year. And so that's how it ended up getting made at Sony. Interesting. And so different yeah. because, you know, this one was really something you were able to like, to to not only work with but like have Anna Ferris from the start and create this kind of with her in a way and, and brainstorm yeah. and come up with solutions really quickly. Like it just feels like a different type of process to achieve that screenplay. 
yeah it was uh yeah it was like right you know from from scratch for sure and I remember when we did the first table read at Sony um and it was like it hadn't been greenlit yet I think the table read was to get the execs excited to greenlight it and so the director Fred had on a like in full bunny costume hair and makeup <laughs> and when she walked in the door I I screamed aloud and almost fell ah. off my chair because I just couldn't believe how different she looked because you know the, you know the on I know is very natural and like you know we'd be great like when she was like kind of in character when we were pitching she's like you know wearing a mini skirt and a tank top like but now she was like a full bunny regalia and we were just like whoa it, was it works yeah we're like and this is a movie so yeah that was so a lot of good fun and that it worked here in LA too oh um, so that so worked was, nicer because you could be there yeah. more often yeah exactly like that whole sorority was down in it was just a regular house in Koreatown that whole mm. Greek row they just put Greek signs in front of you know every house on this street and start it. yeah <laughs> um let me ask you a question I, I I've heard different things from different people and I'm curious about what do you think so I've heard a lot that like writers on set aren't really like given a lot of, you know, like it's really like a director's medium. And so sometimes like the writers are very involved as the film is being, you know, done or or being um, filmed. And then other times, you know, the writers aren't really like they kind of did their thing. They did their screenplay. They're on to the next. Do you feel like what, what has been your experience? Well, when I'm there, I'm there to just watch and enjoy. But if something's not working, like, you know, if we need an extra line to cover someone crossing the room, like, you know, a lot of times in blocking, you're like, oh, wait, we need something here. I'd rather, you know, be there to offer up the line than have like, you know, the actor have to do it themselves or there right. would be a weird silence. So um, directors usually like it when I'm on set or someday yeah. like Robert Luketic, you know, for Legally Blonde and The Ugly Truth. Um, I was there every time and Robert's very like, you know, collaborative. He wants yeah. me to, like, if I missed a day to go to the dentist or something, they'd be like, where were you yesterday? I'm oh. like, you, know, you guys know I'm not getting paid to be here, right? I'm not <laughs> for fun. But uh, it probably, I mean, I imagine it's so helpful because you have the source right there. So if something yeah. isn't working for something that's, you know, n- n- nothing, just, just having it, you know, off the ground, or maybe there's something to do with costumes or something that's added to the scene, and, and a line doesn't work the same way or just having the creativity that comes from having the writer on set and just being able right. to like improvise. Well, also why the characters, like if an actor's like, I'm not really sure why I'm saying this, then Robert yes. can come to me and I'm like, oh, well, in my mind, she's mad because of this, this and this. And then exactly. he'll go and tell her and then she can incorporate that subtext into the line, you know, exactly. so that she understands it. And then, you know, when... Warner was about to dump L in that scene in Legally Blonde. He asked me, like, you know, did I ever really love her or am I just a dick? And mm. I'm like, no, no, you loved her. But yeah. your family, you know, your family will never accept her. So you're just trying to get out of this now before it gets any, any deeper. Like, so mm. it's good for me to be there to answer those questions for sure, because that informed the way he played the scene. You know? right, absolutely. And he, he comes off as like a, like a nicer version. Like, like, I feel like he's, he's obviously in some ways a little like, you know, not loved by the end of the film, but at the same time, like he, he's, he's this warm character. Like you kind of understand her, her plight to get him back. You know, there's yeah. this element of like, you like him. He's, he's relatively likable point being, <laughs> I think the point of all this is I'm getting, I, you know, they should pay you to be on set. They should <laughs> have you on set every day. It sounds, 
incredibly um, informative and helpful to the greater creation. So yeah. I'm pulling for that. And it's fun because, you know, a lot, there's a lot of downtime in making movies, like in between setups. So you right. get to the past and, you know, make lifelong friends. Like Selma Blair and I are still very close. Oh. And, you know, Gerard Butler's always all over around the world, but we text a few times a year. And so if I fun. run into him, it's always like very happy. You know, it's like, yeah. it's really fun to get to know these people. And you've made something together. It's like you all yeah. have this like, shared project shared story that you told yeah um well speaking of Gerard let's go into the ugly truth how did that come about that was a rewrite of a script written by uh, Nicole Eastman and um we were brought on to make it rated r Mm. and uh just kind of update some of the the things I think it had been written like 10 or so years before we came on so there were Mm. some things that had to be kind of updated but uh, that was really fun because that was our first rated R movie and my humor tends toward the blue, as they say. Mm. So I was like, what? We get to cast in this movie? And great. Jokes? I was like, I could hear like the angels singing when they told me they were- Orgasm jokes. Oh my God, I was so Vibrator happy. stuff. Yeah, it was, it was, it was yeah. definitely a little different. Definitely a little, a little more R, if you will. That must've been yeah. really fun. It was really fun. And yeah. you said you were on set for a lot of those. Of that yeah, that also shot in LA well. and Robert Lucetic, our, our Legally Blonde director, was the director on that as well. Right. So, Excellent. Um, that was super fun. Do you I have any? literally right down the street from my house. Like I oh, would roll so out of fun. bed and drive two miles. Oh God. It sounds so easy. It sounds so lovely. Yeah. Now um, everything shoots in like Louisiana or Atlanta. Yeah. It's like you have to get on a plane to make a movie these days. All the tax breaks. Yeah. Elsewhere. Um, do you have any say on uh, who gets attached to your film in ter- now, like in, in terms of director now, in terms of an actor that you like, you know, do you have any say in that? Once a studio buys something, they have all the say. Yeah. But like we have a, an independent project that um, we'll hopefully get shot like the end of this year. Knock on waterfall goes well. So we, got to, so we got to interview all the directors that were interested and, you know, we'll have a say in the cast and all that. So that's always a nice thing but you know for like I said for um she's the man they did there was a link where I could watch the audition tapes right I was thinking that because you saw Channing I mean yeah they didn't have to listen to me but they would listen to me if I had a strong opinion they did listen to you yeah (laughs) I remember the director called me up and he's like Karen you're gonna be very happy we just hired you and I was like oh my god thank god such a good choice oh good I'm glad to hear that I didn't realize I wasn't sure if they do send you I know you said for that particular movie they send you a lot of the casting choices but or the options if you will but it's nice Um, to hear that they they do that um but not always like not not always yeah yeah um okay so couple more things. One. So the way I found you initially was a few months ago. I've been following you for a while. Highly recommend following Karen on Twitter specifically, but, um, there was this viral tweet I wanted to ask you about. So there was something that came out that was like, Oh, did you know that like Reese Witherspoon's Elle Woods and Selma Blair were supposed to have gone together in the original script. And all you wrote was, this is not true, which yeah. would have been enough. But so I think the person wrote back to you and was just like, 
what's your source? Here's yeah. mine. And put up a link to something that had your picture in it, which was amazing. And you were like, I'm that girl, like right yeah. there in the middle. And I wrote <laughs> it. And so I can, I, that's the source. It's me. And I just, I think I sent this to everybody, first of all, but also it was so funny. Just, I mean, it makes sense how funny you are and, and obviously the writing, but just, it was so great. Did you get a lot of attention from that? Did, oh is that God. something it was well, what, so funny. What's so funny is I rarely, I mean, I go through phases on Twitter. Like I'll tweet a lot for a couple of years and then I just don't, I don't even look at it for like a year. I think when Trump became president, I just stopped looking at Twitter because yeah. every day it just made me mad. I was just like, oh, it's just reporting some other idiotic thing he's done. I can't bear to look at it. <laughs> yeah. So I hadn't been on Twitter in a while. And then when that, it was the New York Times oral history that right. that quote was in because one of the actresses said she remembered that ending, but she remembered that ending incorrectly because that mm. ending never existed. And I was thinking yeah. like, did she dream that? Was it a joke someone made on set? Like, I mean, she's, Jessica Coffield is a friend right. of mine. And, you know, she still comes to my birthday party. It's like, Aww. we're very close. So she, I knew she wouldn't say that unless she believed it to be true. Right. It wasn't like she was like trying to cause controversy. She just yeah. misremembered. I mean, it was 20 years ago. Yeah. So um, then I saw like when that came out, I was just like, oh gosh, like people are going to be mad if they think that ending's cut. And then I went on Twitter and I saw that some people were mad. Yeah. And I was like, oh no, I don't want people to be mad that they <laughs> lost something that never existed. This is terrible. So I just started uh, writing like this is not true and the reply to them, but I didn't tweet anything myself about it. Mm. I just replied to people. Yeah. And I didn't know that anyone could see replies except for the person <laughs> who wrote the tweet and their followers. So then I get a yeah. call from Entertainment Weekly saying, um, hey, we saw that you're, you know, refuting this, blah, blah, blah on Twitter. And I'm like, how did you see that? I didn't tweet about it. And he's like, well, you replied to someone. And I'm like, wait, you can see my replies. <laughs> And he's like, yeah. And I was, so then I said the whole thing. Like, I just don't want people to mourn something that didn't exist and right. feel like something was taken away from them. So people were really upset and I wanted to, them not to be upset. And so he wrote an article about it. And then like the advocate, you know, wrote something about it, like saying that I said that. But in the meantime, this, uh, this guy back East, Max, for your pleasure or something, he's a drag king. Nice. He had quoted, um, I think, Collider or so one of the online publications had said like oh there's you know we were robbed of the lesbian ending and legally blonde and so I you know wrote this it's not true and so yeah he was the one that said like source here's mine and then like was... literally put the link to the article with my face <laughs> with right your there. face it was just it couldn't so. have been better like it, just the fact that the source that he was quoted he was like this is mine and right away yeah. it's just a picture of you you're like okay like, so that person me. right in the middle <laughs> that's me so already right there. Thank you. But it just turned into such a funny thing because he immediately yeah. backed up. He was yeah, like, oh my of God, course. But I guess you don't need a source if you wrote the movie. <laughs> and he's like, I'm so sorry. I feel like it's an idiot. I just wrote like, no worries. You know, yeah. it just so that, was so funny. Just thought that that exchange was so funny. And I think especially because, you know, he backed off and I wasn't mad about it that we right. like, made nice. I think that's why it got you know, so widely spread, like that was retweeted like thousands of times. And I know it was just so funny. And there's memes about it. Like, I guess and I'm there's something so in, this, grateful. in Star Wars where someone says like, I am the source. Like people like <laughs> put me in like that chair with my face over like, Obi-Wan Kenobi or something. I was like, uh, 
I have to find that for marketing purposes for sure. Yeah, that's so good. I'm just, well, I'm grateful because that's how I found you. So. Oh, good, good. Um, so the last question I have for you, and I asked this to all my mentors at the end, what is your definition of success? Oh, being happy with what you're doing every day. Mm. And, you know, being at peace with if a movie gets made or doesn't get made or turns out the way you like or doesn't turn out the way you like, but you're still doing a job you love and making a living at it and, you know, having fun in the meantime, I think that's success. So just oh. smiling every day is success at this point in our, in our evolution. Uh-oh. Yeah. Did that evolve over time? Like, did, was that something that you feel like you had to come to that conclusion? Yeah. Because sometimes like if it's a few years go by and like a movie doesn't get made and you're like, Oh, what is happening? And then like something great happens. Like I did the production draft of girls trip and that was so fun. And it got mm. me it was such a hit and I had so such good. a blast writing it. And I'm, I've got a new project with the director of that, that, uh, we just sold to universal. And, uh, so that was just like such a fun experience. Um, so it's like, you know, all of a sudden you'll be like, Oh, nothing's gotten made in a while. And then you get something like that, that, that you get to do and enjoy. And then, you know, right now I just, I sold that one to universal and then Kirsten and I just sold, um, a project to Amazon, a pitch, a rom-com. So, Amazing. I'm excited. There's as long as you keep writing something new, you're always going to be excited. Mm. You know, it's like even if something I always say when I speak to my students or whatever, it's like if something doesn't get made by the time you find that out, you're already almost done with your next script. So in your mind, you're like, well, this one's going to get made. So that's fine. And like mm. you just always have to keep moving forward and keep keep writing. Because if you just sit around and stew about stuff that doesn't get made, you're just going to be a better miserable person and not have yeah. a life. <laughs> you've got to just let it go and move on. Do you feel that's like it's not always easy to do? No, I'm know? thinking that it really is. Do you feel like you used to stew and then you just kind of came to a point where you're like, I can't do that anymore. It just doesn't help. Yeah. You got to yeah. get out of your funk and just start something new forward motion all the time, forward motion all the time. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, Karen. I can't explain to you how joyful this was for me to talk about these wonderful movies with you. Um, Thank you. And I'll put links to like, how to, how can people find you, et cetera. But uh, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Yeah. I'm on Instagram and, and Twitter. I keep Facebook just to like people I know, but Instagram and Twitter, you can find me. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Karen. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you haven't yet, do me a favor, drop a five-star review, follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, and find me on Instagram. I'm at at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. Share this in your stories. Let me know what you think. Share it with a friend, and I'll see you next time.